most of you know, or maybe some of you know, that we are, uh, Darrell mentioned it this morning, uh, we're in week three of a sermon series called Wither. And what we're doing is we are looking throughout scripture and we're looking at stories in particular that paint a picturing a picture of the withering effects of sin, the withering effects of sin. And so the first story we looked at a couple weeks ago was the story of the prodigal son, or if you want to, the prodigal sons. There are these two boys that uh, neither wanted a relationship with their father, but they wanted his stuff. And as a result, both of them were withering. One was withering very overtly, the other less so. And then last week, we looked at the story of the woman at the well, this lady who'd been married five times, was currently living with a man that wasn't her husband. And we looked at the withering effects that her sin had had upon her. And then today, we're going to be looking at the story of Zacchaeus. For those of you guys who are familiar with the story of the wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and anybody who makes a joke about me today being a wee little man, you're going to get excommunicated (laughs) right off the bat. Church discipline. Just kidding. Anyway, let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you very much for this day. Thank you for these people in this room. I thank you that whatever their motivations uh, are, that uh, you have been the one uh, that has drawn them into this room. And so, Father, I pray that they would have an encounter with you, that you would uh, reveal yourself to them. And, Father, even as I mentioned earlier in um, the time today, that you would invite some of these people to life, that you would invite them to growth, that you might invite them to rest. In particular, Father, as we trust in you as our good Father and your Son, Jesus, as our Savior. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm not sure how many of you guys have ever heard of the short story by Leo Tolstoy called How Much Land Does a Man Need? Anybody ever heard that? You can raise your hand. Wow, absolutely nobody. Well, guess what? Today you're going to be introduced to a really cool short story. And uh, I read this, I think, when I was in eighth grade, and it really stuck with me. It resonated deeply with me. The main um, character in the story by Tolstoy uh, is a peasant named Pahom. And he overhears his wife and his sister-in-law arguing over um, the difference between town life or city life and peasant farm life. Pahom is a, a peasant. And he thinks to himself, basically, as he hears his wife and sister-in-law go back and forth in this debate, he said, if I had plenty of land, then I wouldn't fear the devil himself. In other words, he thinks, man, if I had what equals to him wealth, then everything would be great. I wouldn't even fear the devil. And unbeknownst to him, the devil is hiding behind an oven and listens and hears him say this. Um, He becomes very greedy as a result. There's something that sort of twists in him after this circumstance, and it begins uh, to cause arguments with his neighbors. And then as he becomes more and more bitter in his greed, they, the neighbors, begin to make threats to burn down his buildings. And so later he moves to another uh, larger plot of land in another commune to sort of escape the uh, sort of the, the vitriol that's occurring. And here he can grow even more crops and he begins to amass a small fortune. So he goes from this lowly peasant to somebody who has some means. And he has to grow the crops, however, on rented land. It isn't his own land, and that begins to irritate him. He wants more. And then finally, after buying and selling any number of plots of good and fertile land, he hears about a group of people that exist further to the east in Russia called the Baskers. And he's told that they're these very, very simple-minded people who own just massive, massive swaths of land. And so Pahom, this man who is becoming wealthier and wealthier, he goes to them 
in order to try to buy as much land as he possibly can for the lowest price he can possibly negotiate. And what's interesting is when he gets there, their offer is very, very unusual. They, they offer him this, or the chief offers him this. The chief says, for a sum of 1,000 rubles, Pahom, or Pahom can walk around an area that is as large as he can walk around from sunset to sundown starting at daybreak. And he has to mark his way with a spade along the way. And if he's able to return to the starting point um, by sunset that day, then all that land that he has walked around will belong to him. But if he doesn't reach that starting point by sunset, he loses all of his money and he receives no land whatsoever. Again, Pahom is delighted as he believes that he can cover a great distance and he has chanced upon the bargain of a lifetime. And that night, he experiences a dream in which he sees himself lying dead by the feet of the devil who is laughing. And he basically sort of poo-poos the dream, wakes up the next morning, and he's ready to go. He begins walking from a starting point in the morning, and he marks out the land progressively along the way. And he sort of you know, sees a field, and he goes over and gets this field. And then he sees another low-lying area that looks fertile. He goes over there. He's marking out along the way. And he begins to get hot, and so he takes off his shirt, and then he gets hotter, and his feet are hurting, and so he takes off his shoes, and he goes on and on and on until just before the sun sets, and he realizes that he is far, far away from his starting point. And so he begins to run as fast as he can back to this starting point. He's terrified that he won't get this land and that he will lose his money, but he finally arrives at the starting point just as the sun sets, and the baskers all cheer. It's almost like they're happy for him. They hear, cheer his good fortune, but he falls flat on his face on the ground. He's exhausted because of all the work that he's done that day, and a servant looks at him, and there's a trickle of blood coming out of his mouth. He is dead. His servant buries him in an ordinary grave that is six feet by six feet, thus answering the question posed in the title of the story, how much land does a man need? The answer is about six feet. It's a great short story. I highly recommend it. It's called How Much Land Does a Man Need? Again, it's by Tolstoy. And it's about any number of different things. You could pull out some different themes from the short story, but ultimately, it's a story about greed. And as you can see, by the end of the story, this man's greed ultimately ends up destroying him. Now, we see another story about greed in the scriptures in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and it's the story of this man named Zacchaeus. So we're going to read beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let me take a moment. Let's pray really quickly. Father, please help us to see clearly what it is you would have us to see through this story of greed, Father. Um, 
I pray more than anything, however, we would see your son seeking and saving those of us who have wandered away from you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So as we continue this sermon series on the withering effects of sin, what do we see here in the story of Zacchaeus? Over the last two weeks, again, I mentioned we looked at the story of the prodigal son and the woman at the well. And if you exclude the older brother from the story of the prodigal son, then both of those examples, the younger brother and the woman at the well, overtly show sin's withering impact upon our humanity. Both the woman at the well and the younger brother are obviously suffering as a result of their own sin. In the case of the older brother, his withering is less visible, but it's no less corrosive. Similarly, Zacchaeus' disintegration might seem less visible to us in the 21st century. We're kind of used to greed, but it would have been very clear to his Jewish compatriots. Let's look for a moment at Zacchaeus. First of all, we're told that he was a chief tax collector. He essentially worked for the Roman Empire's version of the IRS. As many of you know, the Romans were an occupying force in the ancient Near East, and that was true for Israel as well. They had defeated and conquered all these lands, and they were occupying forces there. The Jewish people were taxed heavily, and then the tax revenue was sent to Rome and used for the maintenance of the Roman Empire that then turned back around and oppressed those people. And so tax collectors were usually citizens of a conquered people group who were working with the Romans to tax their own countrymen. They were considered traitors, and they were despised by almost everyone. Not only were they traitors to their own people, but they were also largely an unethical group. It was widely known that tax collectors would charge more than the amount that was required by Roman law so they could line their pockets further. They could kind of skim off the top. And as a result, though they were hated by their countrymen, at least they were wealthy. And in this case, Zacchaeus wasn't just a run-of-the-mill tax collector. We're told he was a chief tax collector. In other words, he was in charge of the taxation of an entire region, so he was probably extra wealthy. Now, for a moment, just imagine these gangster movies that you might have sort of seen at some point or another, where the underlings extort money from local businesses, like in the 1950s, where they work for a crime boss. Zacchaeus would have been something like that. He would have been the head boss. He would have been powerful. He would have been wealthy, and he would have been despised by just about everyone. Even the Romans who he was working for, even the Romans looked with contempt upon the tax collectors who oppressed their own people. They were useful, but they were contemptuous to the Romans, and he was also short. Did I mention that? So what sin do we see here in Zacchaeus' life? Almost certainly it's the sin of greed. Let's look very quickly at this. Both the Old and the New Testaments condemn greed in the harshest terms. When God condemns sin, by the way, whether it's lying, stealing, or being greedy, he isn't just being capricious, like he's not just sort of making random rules up. Rather, God condemns certain behaviors and attitudes because they are destructive. Let me say that one more time. He, d- he condemns certain behaviors and attitudes because they're destructive. Sin always tears at the fabric of humanity. Sin always tears at the fabric of humanity. Listen to Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, 27 says this, The greedy bring ruin to their households, but the one who hates bribes will live. Listen to Proverbs 29, verse 4, By justice a king gives a country stability, but those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. We know geopolitically we see corrupt governments that are greedy that destroy the people of their country. Quick example, 
In 2009, Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great and Built to Last, wrote a book called How the Mighty Fall. It was a book intended to show how once great companies imploded. One of the companies that he uses as an example is Rubbermaid. You guys maybe are familiar with Rubbermaid. If you've ever been to Walmart or Home Depot, you've seen Rubbermaid goods. And he writes the following in his book. He says this, Once declared by Fortune magazine to be America's most admired company, it has since fallen out of popularity. Rubbermaid was admired for its high levels of innovation, yet the company took it to an extreme, aiming to introduce one new product to their range per day, a strategy that led them to create 1,000 new products in just three years. But all this innovation came at a cost. In pushing so hard for new products, they totally lost control of their costs and constantly failed to meet their orders. Their lack of discipline undermined their innovations, and they suffered a rapid decline until they were eventually taken over by a rival. Companies can also overreach by looking to grow too fast. This is especially dangerous for publicly listed companies with lots of shareholders to please, often under immense pressure to chase profits as quickly as possible. What happened to Rubbermaid? The leaders of Rubbermaid got greedy, and their greed destroyed the company. And it isn't just that greed destroys companies or businesses. Greed also destroys families. It even destroys countries, as the two Proverbs we just read makes clear it's destructive. And greed also destroys us as individuals. Listen to Jesus' words in Mark 7. He says this, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The word translated defile can also be translated as pollute. And so what we see is that each of these sins and greed in particular pollute and corrupt our very essence as humans. We know that. There are many, many movies and stories that clearly illustrate this point. The great Russian authors, we mentioned Tolstoy earlier, but the great Russian authors knew something about greed and its destructive power. Listen to this excerpt from the Brothers Karamazov uh, from uh, Dostoevsky. He says this, The world says, You have needs, satisfy them. You have as much right as the rich and the mighty. Don't hesitate to satisfy your needs. Indeed, expand your needs and demand more. This is the worldly doctrine of today, and they believe that this is freedom. The result for the rich is isolation and suicide, and for the poor, envy and murder. It's a great quote. Dostoevsky observed that greed pollutes us from the inside out, leading to isolation to suicide, to envy, and even to murder. Now let me pause here for just a moment and let me make an educated guess. I'm going to guess that very few of you uh, feel particularly convicted of greed in your day-to-day lives. My guess is that's probably not something that resonates very deeply with most of you. Even listening now, you might be thinking about your uncle, the businessman. You know, he's greedy, obviously. Or you may be thinking about the friend who never, ever offers to pick up the bill. It wouldn't be surprising if you didn't think that greed was an issue for yourself. Most people don't, but let me challenge you for just a moment to rethink that. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller addresses this very issue. 
He says this, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me, he says. He goes on to say this, I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money god's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. It's a great observation. And since what is at stake, according to the Proverbs we read and according to Jesus' words and according to Tim Keller and according to Tolstoy and according to Dostoevsky, since what is at stake is the withering of our families and the withering of our own hearts, I recommend that each of us takes a little bit closer look at our inner worlds. It's entirely possible that there isn't a battle raging within us around this idea of greed precisely because we don't know that greed is at work within us. It is hiding in us. We are blind to its effect. Now, let me move on and make another point. The second point is this, is that in terms of greed, there's always a sin beneath the sin. There's always a sin beneath the sin. Quite some time ago, maybe 10 years ago or so, I was part of a book club where we read Tim Keller's book called Counterfeit Gods. And in the book, Keller looks at common idols of Western culture. He looks at money, sex, and power, along with another list of common idols. And when we got to the chapter on money, most of the people in the group acknowledged that though they had never realized it before, that according to the parameters that Keller laid out in his book, greed actually was an issue for them. They had never realized it before. Now, most of us understand intuitively that the acquisition of wealth can be used for any number of reasons. Money can give us possessions. Do you want nice things, nice cars, nice clothes, technology? Money can give us pleasure, great vacations, great experiences. Money can can be used to attain power and control. Money can be used to attain standing. Money can be used to gain security for us and for our families. What was interesting about the group that I was in was that almost each of the people fell into that last category. They didn't want to acquire or hoard wealth for many of the broader cultural reasons, fast cars, you know, nice clothing or extravagant vacations. They wanted to gather and hoard money so that they could bring security to their wives and their children. They wanted to provide and care for their families. Now, let me offer two quick qualifications here. First, there's absolutely nothing wrong with making and saving money. The Bible affirms that both of those, making and saving money, are wise. If you didn't earn or save money, that would be quite technically foolish, according to Proverbs. Secondly, the desire to protect and provide for your family is a good desire. That's actually a good thing. If you didn't want to protect and provide for your family, something would be wrong with you. We are created in the image of God, and he desires to protect and provide for his children too. So it's a perfectly good desire. However, what was revealed to those of us in that group is that there was a sin beneath our sin. Each of us was trusting primarily in money to give our families the security and safety and flourishing that ultimately should be found in God alone. Let me say that one more time. Each of us in that group anyway was trusting in money to give our families the security, safety, and flourishing that should be ultimately found in God alone. Each of us, by definition, had created, in Tim Keller's words, an idol out of money. Another Keller quote here, he says this, according to the Bible, idolaters do three things with their idols. 
They love them, trust them, and obey them. Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money, new possessions to buy, and looking with jealousy on those who have more than they do. Trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. In looking to our wealth for security and safety, each of us in that group was guilty of breaking the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, maybe you guys are way different than we were 10 years ago. Uh, I kind of doubt it though. Every single day, most of us are looking to some good thing. Maybe our wealth, maybe our family, maybe our job, maybe our education, but we're looking at some good thing to give us the security and the safety that only God ultimately provides. We take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing, and when we do, we begin to wither. Let's get back to the story of Zacchaeus. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, again, imagine this scene for a moment. Jesus was kind of famous. By this time, people had heard of his miracles, and there were rumblings that he might even be the Messiah. Crowds formed everywhere he went, and here it was no different. Jericho was a big town on the way to and from Jerusalem, and so when Jesus arrived on the scene, it would have been like the Christmas parade in Rome, if you've ever been on Broad Street for the Christmas parade, right? It gets crowded, people put their trucks up, and there's just hard to even see over everybody. And so because of the crowd and because of his stature, we're told that Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. Now, we may be so used to this story that we miss just how shocking this would have been. Uh, we live in a meritocracy of sorts. We don't live in a shame and honor culture like in the ancient Near East. But in a shame and honor culture, grown men don't climb trees. That would have been disgraceful, especially wealthy and powerful men. And as the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus probably would have had fine robes and he would have had sort of great shoes. And yet in his desire to see Jesus, he hoists himself up into that tree. Most commentators agree that this would have exposed Zacchaeus to even more ridicule. Maybe Zacchaeus knew he was hated and so he didn't care. Maybe he just liked climbing trees, I don't know. But the text doesn't say specifically. I think, however, that the reason that Zacchaeus climbed this tree is because desperate people do whatever it takes to find the help that they need. And I think that Zacchaeus was a desperate man. Let me pause here for a moment and ask you to consider whether or not you are at a point of desperation in your life. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Maybe you have a child who is wandering away. Maybe there is some corrosive and intractable sin in your life. Whatever the cause of your desperation, I believe that Jesus is drawn to us when we are desperate for his help. Let me say that one more time. I believe that Jesus is drawn to us when we are desperate to his help. Does that make sense for his help? We see person after person coming to Jesus in desperation. The leper in Luke chapter 5, who in the middle of the town falls at Jesus' feet and he begs him. The centurion whose servant was ill. The synagogue ruler whose daughter was near to death. In each of those cases, Jesus moves toward them. He's compelled by their desperation. And here he moves towards Zacchaeus as well. Let's look back at the story in verse 5. When Jesus reaches the spot, 
He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Two relatively quick observations here. First, notice that Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. Biblical scholars point out that this is a strong word that hints that this event was part of Jesus' divine mission to seek and to save the lost. The second point is that in verse 7 it says that all the people, all the people grumbled. Not a single person in the crowd was okay with Jesus reaching out to and loving on Zacchaeus. They didn't want restoration or healing for this withering man. Instead, they wanted justice for him. The mission of Jesus, however, wasn't to mete out justice, but rather it was to offer grace and mercy to withering people. Jesus himself tells us in verse 10 that he came to seek and to save the lost. And that should be good news for each of us. We can't forget Jesus' teaching in the parable of the prodigal son. Both the older and the younger brother were in need of the forgiveness of the father. They both needed to be invited to come home. One final observation from this story. The grace of God is ultimately the thing that brings change into our lives. Look at verses 8 through 10. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Almost certainly Zacchaeus was filled with shame and self-loathing at being a traitor to his own people. It may be those things that led him to take that job to begin with. And yet, though he was filled with shame and self-loathing, he remained unchanged. If anything, shame without some hope of healing may actually spiral us into even more self-destructive behavior. Many of you know that firsthand. Almost certainly, people would have abused, uh, heaped abuse upon Zacchaeus throughout his career. Friends and family may have even deserted him, but still he remained unchanged. What we see in this story, however, is what we see throughout the ministry of Jesus. What changes us isn't fear. It's not self-loathing. It's not shame. What ultimately leads to our flourishing is the unmerited gift of grace and mercy. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that we would indeed see the gift of grace and mercy that your son Jesus offers to us withering people, Father. I pray, Father, that we would um, see you as a God who reaches out to those of us who are desperate, Father, that you sent your son to seek and to save those people who acknowledge uh, our lostness. And so, Father, I pray this morning for the people of Seven Hills Fellowship, the people in this room, that you would enable us to see our brokenness, whether that's um, greed or lust or simply taking some good thing and making it an ultimate thing, Father. And I pray that we would invite your son Jesus um, into our hearts, into our lives, that he might peek into the dark corners of our souls and that he might uh, root out the, the brokenness and the sin and the rebellion that is in us, that we might be made truly human, Father, that we might flourish. We pray all of these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.